0: Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth.
1: So I moved to D.C. 13 years ago to do a Chi Alpha internship program, CMIT. So yes, this is serving as a little bit of commercial even though you already had a great one for Maddie. And it was my first day, or one of my first days in the city, and I was walking between American University near where I live, near the National Cathedral, and Georgetown University. It's a few miles apart, worlds apart, but I'll explain that another time. Both of these campuses filled with college students with different passions, different ideas. And I was walking, and I'm passing by in Glover Park, or if you have a lot of money, Glover Park. Um, I don't, so Glover Park. Um, and I'm passing right by the Russian embassy. So this is 2011. And I grew up in the south and southwest, and so I see someone walking on the same sidewalk as me, but walking the other direction. And if you're from Virginia, you're probably going to do this thing called Be Kind, like I was trying to do, but it's not really a popular thing in D.C., and I didn't know that yet. So this young woman's walking, and I kind of smile and nod, just because we're two humans walking on the same sidewalk. Like, I wasn't interested in her. Like, I clearly had the tattooed ring. This wasn't a flirtation situation. Um, I was just like, you're a person, I'm a person, we're on the sidewalk. So I nod. This is normative behavior, right? Gen Z is like, nope, it's not. Okay, that's cool. For older millennials, this is normative behavior in a Bible Belt or Southern context, which I didn't realize I was no longer in. She looks at me. She frowns at me. She moves her purse from one shoulder to the other and then crosses the sidewalk to the other side. And I was so confused. I was like, she doesn't even know I'm Hispanic yet. This can't even be racism. Like, I barely am convinced I'm Hispanic, I'm so white passing. How did she know? She was just rude. And it wasn't even like, it wasn't even like I was physically intimidating, because y'all have seen me, that couldn't have been the thing. Like, sometimes I like to think that I'm a pacifist for biblical or moral reasons, but it's also practical. I can never win in a fight, so I'm just a pacifist. It's self-serving, right? Right? So yes, I, I am Hispanic, but I know you have a lot of follow-up questions, and I thought I would, I'm a namer, so I'll just name it and address it, okay? My last name is Young, it wasn't a misprint in the program or on the website. My grandfather was adopted, and so his name was Montoya, but it would have, it would have been Montoya, but it's Young. We can all agree that Young is less Hispanic sounding than Montoya. We You can laugh because I'm saying the joke, Okay. If you say the joke at lunch, it's like a microignorance or microaggression. We'll talk later and disciple that, okay? <laughs> my mother's maiden name is Serrano, so but I'm also in this interesting space where my last name's Young. I'm clearly very white-passing or white-presenting, um, and I'm Hispanic, but not Latino because our ancestry is from Spain. I'm from New Mexico. Which people are like, dang it, you're not even from the good one, the old one. One time I was at the airport in Alabama because I went to school at Alabama, roll tide. And the person that worked for TSA said, do you have papers from the consulate? And I went to the University of Alabama, so I don't even know what the consulate is. <laughs> like, hooked on ponics changed my life. Like, that's my testimony academically, Okay. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? A papers from the conference? like, Well, you're, from, you're a foreign citizen. I was like, yeah, because my citizenship is in heaven. What's up? No, I, I didn't say that. I wasn't like that missional. But they were like, no, but for real, it's like, it says on your license, New Mexico, and that's another country. And I was like, uh, I don't want to be too bold with legal authority because sometimes that's not good for people in my kind of, you know, anyways. But I was like, sir, in the most respectful way possible, it's a state. (laughs) And I'm not trying to, like, protest you right now or, like, defund your department. I'm just saying, like, just factually, it's a state. And he was like, I'm going to need to speak to my boss about this. (laughs) (laughs) True story, no hyperbole. And then they come back, and they're like, we have verified that you do not need papers from the consulate, which I love that they didn't admit that I was right, Or that they were wrong, but they kind of gave me the pass. Like, oh, today you don't need the papers from the consulate. So, anyways. When we sang that Spanish song last night, I was talking to some people on the worship team. I haven't sung that song since I was a kid. And I felt like at home. I mean, inside, right? Because I'm Hispanic on the inside. On the outside, I still didn't know what to do with the rhythm in my body because I'm still, you know, whiteness. Um but i loved that song because i grew up at a church called la paz de cristo and um and it was like the it was like my heart was connected in a beautiful and meaningful way and i love that your fellowship makes space and room for that whether that's your story or culture whether it's not now i know for the other brown folks in the room i'm just going to talk to you for a moment i know you've got this question on your mind like you you're thinking i'm like i'm already like o for 2 o for 3 in kind of my cultural heritage. And you're curious if I speak Spanish. Now I do want to, before I answer that question, can we just pause? Like in this cultural moment, shouldn't we stick together? (laughs) Like, like, do we need to really look for things to divide us? Like I've already outed myself as Hispanic. Like I'm no longer an undercover minority here. But I will say my my Spanish Duolingo score (laughs) is getting better. It's not as good as my Swahili, and that's probably saying a lot, because I'm not great at Swahili either. So I now know, I don't know if anyone's going to sit with me at lunch, because things just got really complicated, right? I have somehow disappointed everyone. The Hispanic people are like, I don't think he's a real one. The, thank you, one person. I love it. Thank you. Love, wow, this I feel like sometimes when I share this story in my own context, I won't speak about your fellowship, but like the unsanctified Caucasian guys are just like disappointed in me in our fellowship. They're like, I thought he was one of us. And I'm like, I, I, I... This is my core group. I don't know what to do with that, but I'm just like... I'm like, what do I disciple from there? And I was almost accepted for a moment. But should I want that acceptance? I don't know. It's complicated. My story is complex. I was trying to parse all this out in a very public sphere when at American University, where I spend the majority of my time in discipleship endeavors, we had experienced some pretty traumatic events on campus, some hate crimes, after our first uh, African-American student body president was elected. So the FBI was involved. When I say hate crimes, I don't just mean like uh, uncomfortable speech. I mean like the FBI was involved, okay? And I'm trying to lead a Be the Bridge racial conciliation group on campus. But I'm trying to do that as me, which is interesting. It's like dad bod hipster wannabe who's ethnically confused. And I'm trying to parse all this out in a moment of crisis on our campus, in a smaller fellowship but one that is multi-ethnic and has about half the people on one side of the political aisle and half on the other who have their own thoughts and ideologies about these really important things that matter in our life. But all of them are trying to see like, what does the kingdom mean when we look differently or think differently or vote differently? What does the gospel say about my story and my hurt and my situation? How much of my culture do I bring into the conversation? Does conversion involve my heart culture or does it only involve externals? All these questions are being asked while hate crimes are going on on our campus. And I remember a a young woman was on the cover of Fox News, CNN, BuzzFeed, because she had made the decision. She wasn't part of our community. She was a student at American University, and she made the decision that in everything that was happening in our country and on our campus, kind of through this tumultuous season, that she was going to, in front of our student union on grounds, uh, she was going to burn an American flag. So it's a, it's a pretty controversial move, a pretty big statement. And what's interesting is I had to begin to think from a pastoral perspective that I've never been in a position where the only way I think I could be heard was by taking such an extreme action. Because I don't think like she planned that. Like, I don't think that was on her entrance essay to college. Like, I think she was in such a place of pain with her family, with our campus, and with the country that she felt that that was appropriate. Now, I'm not saying that that's appropriate, so hear that. But she thought this is the most... Natural thing to do, and that's such an extreme thing. So my heart began to break for her. And then one of our students, Frank, began to befriend her. Frank was not the student that I would send to befriend Naomi. Like, Frank was the conservative guy in our Kiappa that was in ROTC. I had, like, so many other liberal Christians I would have sent ahead of Frank. I would have volunteered as tribute to go to Naomi. And it would have made more sense in a lot of different ways. But Frank decides to care for the person. And he asks her a question that she later said no one had asked her. No news reporters, no university officials, none of her friends, no one that was protesting her sign of protest. And said, how are you doing and what do you need? This guy's an ROTC. I, I'm just, spoiler alert, I don't think he was like pro burning the flag. And yet he reaches out relationally to her. And then they become friends. And I'm just sitting there shocked. I'm like, we could have sent someone else to represent Chi Alpha that would have been an easier fit for her. And he continues to just care for her, get to know her. Look beyond something that was deeply offensive to himself and see the person behind the act. So then she starts coming to our community. I'm shocked. Even our liberal students are shocked. They're like, Frank brought her? How many Franks do we just have the ROTC Frank? Is there another Frank in the building? It's like Frank walks in, he's in his uniform sitting next to her. It's just this incredible picture of what can happen when we put aside our preferences and prioritize reaching and caring for people. And check this out, Frank knew what some of us on staff hadn't yet learned, that you do not need to agree with someone's actions to treat them with dignity or care. Naomi didn't walk away from this thinking, man, I guess ROTC is pretty liberal and American. No, but she realized that you could be in close relationship with someone that might be in disagreement with you in some key area. And that does not exist on our campus. People are kind of in circles, in tribes, in these echo chambers, if you will. And someone had bridged the gap because of Jesus. So she starts coming to more things, to our version of MNL, to our core groups. She later tells us this heartbreaking story that she's estranged from her family because of how they parsed an election and how she parsed an election. She wasn't even going home for Thanksgiving. Again, I'm not saying her actions are appropriate. I'm saying they're her reality. And my job as a core group leader and as a pastor isn't to judge or police or regulate how someone expresses their brokenness, but to help point them to Jesus in that. And Frank did that. Her and Frank are still friends. I think she's still on a very long but slow journey of reconstructing her faith, reconstructing a view of the church, of community, and of Jesus. But I know that the seeds that Frank sowed landed deeply in the soil of her heart. As we last night talked about refocusing, and thinking about what is our bar for community, my goal today as we look at another passage written by Luke is to redefine what friendship can look like. Because I think the only thing better than hearing and supporting and understanding the complexity of a story like Frank and Naomi's is being a Frank in a Naomi's life. Like, that story for me wasn't just a story I could tell people that supported Chi Alpha or just drop that in a newsletter. It was like, I don't want to live off of the excitement of a second-hand missional person. I want to have my own stories like that. Where I'm creating dissonance in the minds of students on campus who don't expect Christians to care, to listen to apologize when necessary and to walk with them. To love them where they at and then to love them and call them higher and deeper. Clearly I'm a fanboy of Luke. So we'll be in Luke chapter 5. As we're thinking about redefining friendship. Verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, they came and they tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Verse 19, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? I don't think they were using fellow friendly. You know what I mean? Like I think they were, it was like an insult, you know? Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asks them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? I love this passage because it paints for us the picture of what friendship can look like and how meaningful friendship can be. We have to zoom out a little bit and realize that relationships, community, friendship, those are not only God's idea, but it's part of God's identity. Stanley Grenz, in The Theology of the Community of God reminds us that God in himself is community in the Trinity, And so he's simply inviting us to partake in the community that's already at work. It reminds me how, in this beautiful way, that even as we talk about the spiritual disciplines and practice some of them this weekend, that everything that you and I do is a response to what God has already done. We're not initiating anything. At least twice, he started to pursue each of you. At creation and at the cross, and I'm sure there's many more moments in between in your own context and story. It reminds me of Zephaniah where we find out that he's a mighty savior singing over us. It's this duality of picture. He is strong and he's artistic. He is creative and yet he is a commander. And he sings over us, which means when the worship team sings and we join them, we're only joining in the song of heaven that's already before us. The weight of initiation or the weight of beginning the relationship isn't on us. The psalmist says that goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. One um, author put it like this, that, that Jesus is the hound of heaven pursuing us to the ends of the earth. So yes, we need to be open to pursue God, but we get to do so from a place of security, knowing that he has already pursued you. He's singing over you. He's wanting to intervene in your story. He's desiring to interject himself and his goodness into your life, in the good moments and in the bad. So it involves our action, our collaboration. It's this, as Eugene Peterson says, this dynamic dance of spirituality, but it's not something that begins with our will or our intent, but it's simply a response. That should comfort us, but that also should empower us, just like it empowered these friends. This has got to be one of the greatest core groups in all of history. Jesus is teaching. The religious leaders are hanging around critiquing as normal. And they decide that they are going to find their friend who needs healing, go and get their friend, and bring their friend. This is before Uber and Lyft, just to clarify. This is taking a lot of sweat, a lot of time, a lot of intentionality, And I love how they heard that Jesus was in town and they didn't think of their own needs. They thought of their needs of a friend. Did you catch that? Like they weren't like, sweet, now I can bring my prayer request to the Lord. They said, I have a friend who's in need of healing and I can't heal my friend, but I know someone who can. There are people in your classes, in your dorms, in your Chi houses who are going through something so difficult you've already realized that you can't fix it. And they cannot fix it themselves, most certainly. And yet we know the one who can. So our job is to bring them into a collision, an intersection of need, of hurt, of sickness, and the person that can bring healing. I've also got to note, I do sense that the paralyzed person in this story was willing to be undignified in search of their healing. It may not have been seen as problematic or an issue where they could have got canceled, but that's just awkward when your friends are like, hey, can we just carry you around town? That has a level of offense, of insult. Nobody wants to be that guy. He didn't wake up thinking, man, I hope my friends just cart me around all over a first century Middle Eastern context. That sounds fun. And yet his desire for change was greater than his desire for comfort. They could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, and so they went home disappointed. No, they didn't, actually. Do you catch that? They, they, there was a closed door, and they didn't have like an interesting spiritual cliche to abdicate them from any more leadership. They decided to press in. They weren't like, my son, he's eight, he's always like, when God closes a door, he opens a Chick-fil-A, which is really cute, but not at all theologically helpful. And if my students in America knew that we eat there occasionally, I would be canceled. Um, They went up on the roof. I don't think that there's an elevator. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think there's ADA accessibility. There's blood and sweat and tears. Because they're trying to shimmy a grown man up a ladder, potentially. Maybe there's a skylight, maybe there's not. I'm not a first century architectural guy. But it seems like they are willing to do whatever it takes to get their friend in front of Jesus. And the question is, are you and I? Are you and I willing to do what it takes so that our friends would experience healing, freedom, fullness? I also just love the audacity. Like, Jesus is in the middle of a talk And that would be like if things started falling on my bald head because like Gavin was up there trying to get my attention with a friend in need and it just like busts through the ceiling. I'm not pro-vandalism. I know you might assume that because my car bumper stickers. I'm not. I just love that they're willing to do whatever it takes. They're willing to break down walls, to break through the roof so that healing could be found. They they interrupt Jesus' teaching. Verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith. Just a quick pop quiz, right? Because I'm a homeschooler. I could do that. Whose faith did he see? The friends, that's right. The friends' faith made a difference. And then Jesus does something that in my reading of the gospel accounts, I don't know if he does in any other place. And he doesn't do it often if he does. Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Jesus looks at the paralyzed person and calls him friend because he sees the beauty and robust friendship, and Jesus mirrors that back. Jesus often doesn't call people friend, Before miracles. Jesus sees the dynamic nature of this core group. And Jesus jumps in. He says friend. Their friendship is so vibrant. It's drawing Jesus in. Do you catch that? I'm pretty sure Jesus knew his name. Because Jesus is God. Friend. Your sins are forgiven. If we pause right here. If I'm the friends, I, I'm like, is Jesus having a bad day? Because I thought like the the paralysis in the mat was kind of a signal on what we were looking for. We're looking for healing Jesus. Like it's, it's like this build up and then it's like your sins are forgiven. And I'm sure they're kind of trying to smile like that. That's good. Not what we came for or vandalized the house for or what we've been carting this guy around for. But yeah, sure. We're kind of here for healing Jesus. But I love that Jesus wants to heal the most pertinent problems, even if they're not the most presenting problems. The beautiful part about Jesus is that he's both and. The story doesn't end there, although it could, and that'd be okay. But he heals what's most hurting, which is the heart in this story. And then there's a little kerfuffle with the religious leaders. Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? I feel like, I, I just got to talk about this because I'm fascinated by it. I feel like it's kind of like if I'm writing a devotional email, like I won't capitalize Satan just to kind of, you know, it's like a grammar middle finger to Satan. You know what I mean? I'm not going to give him the, the I'm not going to capitalize that S. Beelzebub, lowercase b. Lucifer, definitely lowercase l. I feel like that's what's happening here. They're like, that fellow. It's like sounds respectful, but it's not. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that fellow. It's like, oh, no, we know. We know the Pharisees, what they're doing here, trying to undermine. And I love how they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Isn't this blasphemous? And then like my friend Chase says, he's a faculty staff member at Georgetown who I'm mentoring, he says, man, this is where Jesus just goes OG, where Jesus is kind of just thug. Jesus is like, I know what you're thinking, and we're going to talk about what you're thinking. Jesus is like, okay, you didn't like that I forgave him. How about I heal him? Boom, two for one. Or in the words of Pete, boom, baby. And he says, I want you to know the authority that I have. So not only is Jesus providing an inner healing for the paralyzed person, he provides a physical healing for the paralyzed person, And he's trying to provide healing for the collective community by saying, I have the authority to do this. I can be trusted. I am leading people onto a path, and you're invited into it. Verse 26, I love the response. Everyone was amazed, gave praise to God they're filled with awe. I just imagine Luke walking around, maybe he finds a second year who's a little shy and he's like, "Hey, how how do you feel like today's revival went?" And I love the quote, "We have seen remarkable things today." That guy was also homeschooled, like he can't come up with anything else to say. Like all this happened is like, "I think it's been it's been good. We didn't get free food, but hey, you win some, you lose some. It's good. It was a good day with Jesus." Jesus, in this portrait that Luke gives us, is inviting us to realize that someone's freedom and healing could be at the other end of our friendship. In your college years, you're in a unique and strategic time where you're in close proximity to those that might be far from God, at a stage of intellectual, emotional, and spiritual openness that is not easily replicable afterwards, You are positioned to be a friend whose friendship can lead to eternal change. In a way that your staff cannot. In a way that I cannot. Someone yesterday after the session, it was so precious, they came up and they were like, whoa, that's crazy, you're like the director and you lead a core group, that's intense. They're like, that would be like if Pete led my core group, that would be, that's intense. That's intense. And I was like, I know for sure. (laughs) It's not by its design, it's out of necessity in the season of our ministry. And even though I can spend a lot of time late at night on campus, I can play games and hang out, it's not the same as when a peer, when a friend says, I want to fight for your freedom. Because to be honest, on my campus, when I share the gospel, when I challenge guys, when I call people higher, when I introduce accountability, when I invite people to fast and pray over the concerns of their heart, they can easily and somewhat logically dismiss it as, well, that's the pastor. That's the director. That's that guy that kind of looks like he's from Monsters, Inc., that bald guy, you know? That's right. I hear all things. I see all things. My boss is the Lord, and he speaks often with me. We'll chat at lunch. No, I'm just kidding. You are in a place to not only learn this story, but to live this story. And I want to be be very clear. I am so glad that we're here and that we have this moment and we have this time. But reading about deep spiritual friendships is not the same as actually having them. The fact that you heard this talk means now you're prepared to go do it. It doesn't mean that you've done it. When our community heard the story of Naomi and Frank, it became a story of celebration. And then I said, hey, guys, this is becoming like a memory verse for us. It's no, nobody's applying. Like, are we going to tell the Frank and Naomi story for the next 10 years, or are we going to see God do more stories? Like, are we going to be satisfied with kind of what core group was like a year ago or two years ago? Or are we going to let God paint new moments of friendship for us? And this is the thing. I mean, my Chi Alpha director, Craig, taught me this at the University of Alabama. Roll Tide. When I was in Chi Alpha there. And in some ways, Chi Alpha sounds like a fraternity or sorority, but it's, in a lot of ways it functions as an inverse fraternity or sorority. And that the longer you're in it, the less it is about you. And I didn't like hearing that. Because I was like, I've given so much. I'm a core group leader. It feels like it's a part-time job without pay. I never said that, but I thought that. When does Kai Alpha get to be about me again? And over lunch, I'm sure it was at a meet-and-three place with a lot of sweet tea, basically diabetes juice. And Craig says, I'm glad that the class before you never thought that way. When does Kaifa get to be about me? He's like, and you can think that, but then there will not be a legacy of your leadership. It was like when we were experiencing—I'm going to put growth in quotes—at at American, we were in this huge transition. Students were freaking out; we we're getting too big because 50 people showed up at our M and Right? I was laughing too. They're like it's too big. Blame it's too big. They're like, we cannot go to laser tag altogether anymore. This is a real student complaint. I know I use hyperbole a lot, but this is a real conversation. We can't go to laser tag anymore. What are you going to do about it? And I just had forgotten that we were the laser tag ministry. No, we weren't. Sorry, I forgot about that. I was like, oh, that's what I was giving my life to, to create a social club for undergrads. Um, I didn't say that, but I did, I, I did want to say this. I get that when you transition from being like a small group as a ministry to a network of small groups or core groups as a ministry, it can be challenging. I understand that. But I just remember looking into that person's eyes and wanting to express that at some point, they were the person invited in, not because it was a natural friendship, but because it was an intentional one. We do this illustration with our discipleship team, which is like our combination of core group leaders that are students and staff. And we do it before welcome weeks, and we say, let's imagine someone gives you five movie tickets. Free to a movie of your choosing that's somewhat appropriate in the context of the cross. Okay, let's not get crazy on what we're seeing as a core group. Who do you give the tickets to and why? So it's an exercise that we do to learn how leaders are thinking. So hopefully they're, they're, hopefully they're going to the movie themselves. <laughs> they're not just like putting in the group, Me, hey guys, go to the movies without me. I've got other plans with my girlfriend. No, that's not a great core group leader. They have five tickets. The natural tendency for a junior or senior um, would be to invite their friends, people in their class. For me, the, the, the kingdom ethic perspective would be to go yourself with Ticket 1, bring your co-leader with Ticket 2, maybe bring someone from your core group who's, in your, who, who's around your age, who's easy to go along with Ticket 3, and then Tickets 4 and 5 give to people who aren't yet fully engaged in the community. Because at some point or another, we never want to think about this, but we were somebody's number four and number five. And the longer we stayed in it, we kind of accidentally started centering ourselves in the story. And then we forget to live externally. In other words, Christian community is primarily designed for those that aren't here yet. And that's incredibly hard for us to wrap our minds around as we're so individualistic. Yes, you should still benefit from Chi Alpha as a junior or senior, as a core group leader. But you have to ask the question, who is not here yet that could be here if you would walk with intentionality? Have y'all ever met an EGR, an extra grace required person? Have y'all ever met? A lot of hands are not up, so that means you probably are that, but that's Okay. I was homeschooled. I was clearly EGR for a very long time. We talk about this concept in our community, not because we want to distance ourselves from people that are hard to love, but because we want to ask God for the grace to love them where they're at. I've got a life group that, I mean, I think I'll tell them to their face, like, hey, some of you guys were in the EGR phase. Some of you guys are still parked out there. Um, But that doesn't mean I'm not going to love you well. It means I'm going to bring the grace that is required. In other words, like, I also want to have like, healthy boundaries, not to keep people out, but to get to the right people in at the right moments. I want to pursue people the way that these friends were pursuing freedom. It's not fun being ghosted as a core group leader. That happens to me more often than I'd want to admit. And at some point I do have to like, check myself because it's just like awkward because I'm like older. And it's like someone who's 19, okay, I'm going to like calm down after six no responses, right? <laughs> like I don't want the university to get involved. But I do want to have a pursuit where I'm not just looking for the low-hanging fruit or the easy yeses. I don't want our campus groups or fellowships to exist just for those that were already looking for us before they came to grounds. But I want to exist for those like like Naomi. Or one of the guys who's currently in my group, Trevor. Trevor showed up because he saw a poster that we put up on campus that said, Dinner for Doubters. Are you deconstructing your faith? Are you finding it difficult to follow Jesus in this cultural moment? Do you love Jesus but have a hard time with other Christians? Join us for this free dinner group. We put up the poster, sent targeted Instagram, Facebook ads, the whole whole shebang. We didn't know who would show up, but we really felt like there are people that are deconstructing on our campus without reconstructing, which means they're spiritually homeless. And we want to step in. Not to provide answers, but to provide pastoral care and support and to help point them to Jesus. Not a lot of people showed up, but Trevor kept showing up. And Trevor showed up with his iPhone full of Questions. But then he realized that communities of faith aren't always about having answers to every question, but being willing to show up again and again with questions. That according to the life of David, doubts can distance us from God, but they can also draw us to God if we invite him into those spaces. We thought it would take two years for someone to transition from Dinner for Doubters to traditional Chi Alpha, to be honest. We were playing the long game. But we had some volunteers from my life group or core group um, volunteer at Dinner for Doubters. And they invited Trevor. And Trevor started coming the next week. So I was like, wow, this is two years quicker than I expected. Trevor, recently, he's been a part of our, our community, our fellowship for a few semesters. And he started to bring his friends. His friends that are processing questions of identity. Questions of... Why do we believe and trust in the Bible? How do we trust a broken church? But they do know that there is more to life than simply achieving. So they've started to come into our, our core groups, into our programming, into relationships with staff and students. And recently, I had all the guys share in core group, why, why are you here tonight? And I didn't, it sounds rude. It wasn't rude. It was just kind of like, hey, let's remind each other why we gather And Trevor said, I'm here because through this group, my faith in God is being restored. That is not a testament to our team or our group, but that is a testament to what happens when spaces of friendship are open and people don't have to meet any prerequisites of behavior to enter into those spaces. Trevor's is messy. If he were here, he would admit that. But he is on a trajectory to walking closer to Jesus, and honestly, he's the most missional person right now in my core group. He keeps asking if it's okay to bring people. And I'm like, no, for sure, for sure, yeah. and Maybe remind the other guys we should do that too. Trevor realized that he wanted to live out this idea that God is good even when life didn't feel good and he was willing to stick with it. And now he's our key to finding others on campus who are in that same boat who are saying, I need healing, but I know that there has to be a healer. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Friend, your sins are forgiven. I imagine that those words from Jesus are not only imprinted in the heart and mind of the man that used to be paralyzed, but also of his friends. The question still stands before you and I. How do we leave our heart our fellowship, our core groups open for one more person? One more international student, one more third year, one more extra grace required person. How do we not love our current reality at Chi Alpha Connect so much that we don't invite someone else into it? How do we enjoy something but then share it? I think we all understand this normally. My friend Josh puts it like this, that there's one word that everybody brings different connotations to and baggage to. And it's a word that's vital to the growth of Christian community that no one wants to talk about. Because if you say it, it can get really complicated. And that word is evangelism. And in this passage, evangelism is someone just connecting the dots between hurting and healer. I do feel like it's always that simple, but working it out is always hard. I mean, this took us minutes to read. It took them hours to do. The question before us is, who will we pursue? Who will we notice who's in need? And will we not try to fix it, but will we help bring them into an encounter With Jesus? Will we be willing to write a new story? I love that this story gets repeated throughout time because friendship here means caring about someone's wholeness in a way that would implicate us into action. In other words, the New Testament authors in particular they had a slightly different view of prayer than we can have. For them, prayer was a first action step that preceded other steps of action. Maybe y'all are more mature than me, but sometimes I use prayer as a means to abdicate myself from any action. I'm going to pray over that crisis, pray over that tragedy. I'll say I'll pray for someone, but I'm really not going to pray for them. I'm going to watch Netflix. And yet for them, prayer became formative and formational because it, implicated them in someone else's story. All of us in here have someone who implicated and intervened in our story that led to the implication and intervening of Jesus in our lives. The beautiful question, what we term in our community, the joyous responsibility that we carry is how do we not let it end with us? I think I mentioned... That guy in my core group yesterday, Caleb, who doesn't want to pray with me anymore. Um, it was interesting. He recently uh, got baptized at one of our retreats, and i I thought it was going to be like he was going to be the most excited about it. I mean, I was hyped too, but you know, he was hyped. But who was even more excited was the person that was helping me baptize him because I don't. We just do baptism by committee, I guess. Um, was someone who had an impact in his life, who had gotten baptized years before in our chi alpha, Chris, and it was funny because Chris pulled me aside and said, "I didn't know if anything could top me being baptized at fall retreat." He's like, "But being able to." in there in the water, seeing Caleb being baptized, and he invited me in the water because I had a positive role in his life, he's like, that topped it. And it reminds me that us experiencing breakthrough is incredibly powerful and amazing. But the stories that are even more fun to tell is when our obedience leads to someone else's breakthrough. And sometimes you see it immediately, and sometimes you see it years down the road. But I want to invite us to be the type of friends where our friendship deeply matters. The type of friendships that get a lot of attention on our campuses in D.C. are friendships that are for utility or for networking. It's like networking with a little bit of kindness. It's about a transaction. A transformational friendship puts, as Ephesians says, look to the needs of others before your own. All of us have things going on in our lives and in our stories. Everyone's fighting a battle that the other people next to you may or may not know about. But the same is true for those in your classes, in your house, in your apartment, in your core group. And they might not even know that healing and freedom is possible but for your friendship. It's a joyous responsibility because it is a weight but it also leads to some of the greatest moments and stories that you could tell. My favorite moments in my Chi Alpha experience aren't about when the story was about me, but when I was helping someone else have their moment of story. And I hope that that could be the same for you. As the worship band comes up, as we prepare to respond, as we think about redefining friendship, I think I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't say this because I, I'm this honest with my own students and so maybe give me a little grace as I'm honest with you. At least in our campus, in our culture, in our city, that if something is uncomfortable or gives discomfort, it's automatically assumed as bad or toxic. Like that's just the reality that I'm working in. And yet, all growth come from moments of appropriate discomfort. I think we swing so far on a pendulum where we can be so offensive and in your face and not hospitable with our faith, that then we kind of assume, well, I'm just not going to do anything outwardly. I'm just going to act like Jesus but not mention his name. But that's not necessarily what we're called to do either. I tell my students all the time, if you're nice and if you're kind and if you're thoughtful and if you celebrate people's birthdays and if you hang out and, and, and you serve people, they're, on our campus at least, they're not going to just like assume you're a Christian. They're going to be like, oh, it's sweet. It's another kind of, you know, vegan dude who's kind. I was like, It's not really going to win anyone to, you know, team Jesus. We have to both act like Jesus and speak of Jesus. And usually we're really good at one of the two. But if we act like Jesus and don't speak of him, I think we'll feel morally superior, and yet we won't ever experience stories like we just read. If we just talk about Jesus and don't act like Jesus, I think we have a lot of examples of what that looks like in our culture and how unhelpful that is to mission. I love that for the rest of their lives, these friends... Maybe even when they were taking communion, hearing that God's body and blood were given for them, that they are forgiven, they probably went back in their emotional memories to this moment. And yet, if their friends were willing to do this, I'm curious what stories aren't in Scripture that these friends then took on. Because it's not like they're like, let's just fold up our core group. That was good. Ralph got healed. I named him Ralph. He's not really Ralph. That's not like even in the message or anything, the paraphrase. But like, every moment can lead to another moment. In other words, our kind of mountaintop experiences aren't designed just for us to set up camp, but designed to lead us closer into the heart of God and further into relationships that might glorify Him. Why don't you stand with me as you're able? God, I ask that as we respond, as you help us to reframe and redefine our friendship, we're reminded that the transformation of our mind plays a big role in our spiritual and emotional realities help me help us to be willing to put ourselves out there to be a friend that cares for someone else's freedom even when we don't know how the story will end even if we don't realize how they might reciprocate or respond would we be willing to stand in the gap to take on the joyous responsibility not alone you are with us in that but would we not be content in areas where you desire for us to contend? Would we not be satisfied when you're calling us to create room for one more? Would you empower us and remind us that we were someone's one more? We were someone's extra grace required. We were someone's, I had to make room for this person before I fully knew them. And would we be a community on mission for your glory and our maturity. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
0: Lord, um, thank you for who you are. Thank you for this time, Lord. We are asking you, Lord, to fill us again, Lord. Not just for ourselves, Lord, but for our friends, Lord God, for those you want us to reach out to, to pour into, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God, that as we step out in faith, we have you, your image to look back to, Lord God, that you are the perfect friend, Lord. Um, God, we give you the rest of this day, Lord God. Um, may you bless us. May you protect us, Lord God. Um, we are grateful for this time to be here, Lord. May you be over everything we do from... The sports lord god to prayer moments lord um, to the intern meeting lord uh, may you just bless it we give you this time lord and we love you and your mighty name we pray with thanksgiving amen thank you for listening to the chi alpha at the university of virginia podcast for more information you can visit our website xaat uva.com